You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. When you see an object, you pretty much know what that object is made for. So when you guys see this, do you know what this is made for? Yeah, you can say yes, it's okay. This is interactive. Yes, I hope you know what this is made for. This is a hammer, all right? This hammer is made to build things. So you understand that what it's made for. When I understand what it's made for, I understand its purpose. I understand how it works and what it does when I understand what it is made for. If I hold up this uh, football, do you understand what this is and what it is made for? Yes, yes, you do understand. This is a football. Today, this football, not this one, but a football will be used today several times and hopefully it's in the right end zone every time if you know what I'm saying right but we we will watch today a football like this and it we know what it is made for we'll see it on the field we'll know what they are using it for we won't today see Patrick Mahomes throw a hammer right because that's not hopefully not yet because somebody's going to be in a lot of pain if they try to catch that we won't see him throw a hammer why because that's not what it's made for Hammers aren't made to play games with, right? Hammers are made to build things with. Football, footballs aren't made to hammer nails with. If you saw somebody doing that, you would think, ugh, probably not going to work out too well for that guy, right? Because footballs are made to play the football game with. And when we understand what something is made for, it helps us to understand why it is shaped the way that it is shaped, why it functions the way that it functions. So if I were to hold up you and I were to ask what were you made for, what would be your answer? How would you answer that question? If I were to bring you on the stage and hold you up like I held up the football, right? And say, what is this person made for? What would be your answer to that question? In our study of Exodus, we have come to the building plans for the tabernacle where God is going to dwell among his people. Now, I got to tell you funny. Okay, this first service didn't get this. After the first service, this is my family. I come off the stage. They're laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing at me? And they're like, you said dwell, dwell. There's no syllable. It's one syllable, dwell, right? It's not duh, well, it's dwell. So if I say duh, well, just laugh, all right, so that we can get it over with. I love my family. They're so encouraging to me after messages. So it's just my preacher voice probably where it's like duh, well, sounds better than dwell. But Blake's like, there's, no, there's nothing between the D and the W, dad. It's dwell, not duh, well. So if I, I'm gonna say dwell, a lot today. So if I just laugh and try to stay focused on what I'm saying, because obviously my family was really distracted by my pronunciation of that word. So 
In our study of Exodus, we come to the building plans for the tabernacle where God is going to dwell among his people. Our understanding of what it is made for is going to bring to life this section of scripture that can often be laborious and tedious. If you haven't looked ahead, go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25 through 27 and see how laborious this section of scripture can be. So unless you're the kind of person that loves to pull out the instructions to build something and read through every line and reread through it and figure it out, for most of us, (laughs) this section of scripture can be very laborious and tedious because it's a lot of details about how the temple and the tabernacle and the court of the tabernacle is to be built. So here's the outline of our text today. We're going to look at 25 through 27. The first part in the first nine verses, God is going to call, tell Moses to call the people to give for the building of the sanctuary. So God is going to come tell Moses, hey, go to your, go to the people, say, I want you to give towards this building of the sanctuary. Then in the rest of the passages, 25 through chapter 27, we'll see God's plan for the building of the tabernacle. I noted on here to see also 35 through 40, the end of the book. So here's what happens. In Exodus 25 through 27, God gives the plans for the building of the tabernacle. Then in in Exodus 35 through 40, those plans are executed. So you can sort of run those side by side with each other. Now, in 25 through 27, God starts with the most important piece of the tabernacle and moves outward. In 35 through 50 uh, through 40, they start at the outer outer court and they move inward, all right? So it's a little bit different. But if you have an ESV study Bible, which I encourage you, if you don't, this is a great study Bible for you to use in your personal study. They actually have a diagram of this and they even have where you can go and see, okay, when God talks about the Ark of the Covenant in the first part, where does that match up with Exodus where they're actually building the Ark of the Covenant in the the later part of Exodus? So you can sort of see those two things together. So I'm going to hit this at a really high level today. And so I'm not going to really dig down into this, these building things too much. We'll hit it at a high level, but I would encourage you to go do some study of that and sort of see how God used all of these things and how they were built together and the different passages of scripture that go together. So let's begin with the calling of the people to give towards the building of the sanctuary in Exodus chapter 25 verses 1 and 2. It said this, the Lord said to Moses, remember from last week, Moses is now up on the mountain meeting with God. So the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man, and listen to this term, whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contributions for me. So God tells Moses, I want you to go to the people and I want you to invite them to give toward the building of the sanctuary. But it's interesting that he says, I want you to invite them specifically whose hearts are moved to give. So God was showing us this idea of of grace giving, that he wasn't twisting their arm and saying, you have to give towards the sanctuary. He was saying, I want them to give from their heart. See, God has always been about your heart. 
He's not necessarily about our outward appearance and about outward things that we do because he understands that it starts in the heart. And if he has our heart, then he'll have our stuff. And so he's saying, I want them to give based off their heart as their heart is moved to give. It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 would say that we, the church, the New Testament church, we give based off of grace and we give cheerfully. It was the same thing that was going on in Exodus, right? Is that God was going after our hearts. And so God doesn't want us as a church to be stingy givers, to be irritated and and miserable givers. He wants us to give from the overflow of our heart that we understand that God owns everything to begin with. Because think about the uh, people of Exodus. Where did they get all the stuff that they're going to give? Remember, the book of Exodus only takes place in a two-year period. So they've been traveling since they've left Egypt. We're just now coming to Mount Sinai where they're stopping and hanging out. So they haven't had time to earn stuff, to make stuff. They're on the move. So where did all the stuff that they got come from? Egypt is correct. Because God had promised in Exodus chapter 3 that when they would leave Egypt, he would provide for them from the Egyptians. Then you go to Exodus chapter 12, and it says when they're leaving the land of Egypt, that the, children, the Egyptians were like, here is all of our stuff. And the Bible says that they plundered them. They graciously, the Egyptians graciously gave it to them because they're like, we want you out of here. But they took everything that the Egyptians had. And so when we think about what they were giving to the Lord really had been given to them. They hadn't earned it. It was given to them and they were just giving it back to God. This is really how we should view our finances and our stuff as well. Is that it all belongs to God. and We're just giving back to him the things that we have. That's why we talk about holding our stuff and our finances with open hands. Because it truly doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord and we just are stewards of the gift that he has given us of finances. And so we're to be generous and good givers as the children of Israel were called to be by the Lord. We come to Exodus 25 and verse 8 and we find what I would propose to you is the purpose statement for the rest of 25 through 27. And here's what it says. He says in Exodus 25 and verse eight, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So this is the reason that God is having them build this sanctuary in this tabernacle area is so that God can dwell in their midst. Everything we see in the temple is pointing us to the presence of God that God desires to dwell amongst his people. The tabernacle is constructed so that God cannot be this distant deity that is up on top of a mountain or is in a cloud in the sky, but God can be in their midst. He can dwell amongst them. So 25 and verse eight, I would say, is the purpose statement for the sanctuary. This is God telling Moses what all of this stuff, all these details that he's going to talk about, what they are made for. So after calling them to give and telling Moses the purpose for the tabernacle, he moves into the details of the tabernacle. Now, if I'm honest with you, we could probably spend one Sunday in each part of the tabernacle. Like there's so much stuff 
in there that ties in with the Garden of Eden, that ties in with the church, that ties in with the, the second coming of Christ. There's a lot going on in each part of this temple construction or this tabernacle construction, but I'm gonna hit it at a really high level today in this way. I'm gonna try to describe it for you and then give you the purpose. So at each each section, I'm not going to read it verse by verse. I'm just going to try to describe it to you. Again, if you're a detailed person, read it verse by verse and enjoy the journey. But I'm going to hit it at a high level because we have three services. And so got one more after this. We can't go into 1130. So, so let's, let's run through this details of how the tabernacle is to be built. The first thing that we're going to see in verse 20 or chapter 25, verses 10 through 22 is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. This is, and if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down these passages so you can see the the breakdown of the different sections of Scripture as you go back to study it. But in the, the Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of the tabernacle because this piece of the tabernacle represented the presence of God. This is where God would meet with Moses and eventually the high priest to give him instructions for the people. It is the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. This is the innermost part of the tabernacle. You'll see a picture of this in a second. It was covered. So this Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold. It had a lid on it. This area right here, this lid that was known as the mercy seat. And I wish we had time to dig into that mercy seat because that points us to the New Testament And the word propitiation in the New Testament ties in with this word mercy seat. So there's this mercy seat. And then you have these two angels on the top of it who are bowing and looking towards the mercy seat. They also put rings on it. You can see the poles through them here. They put four rings on it as a way to carry it because no human could touch the Ark of the Covenant because it represented the presence of God. So when they would carry it, they had to put these poles in because it was a tabernacle, it was a tent, so they were constantly moving through the wilderness and this would move with them. And so this was a way for them not to displease the Lord and touch the tabernacle or touch the Ark of the Covenant and be be killed. So the purpose for this piece was for God to meet with man. It was to be done through a mediator. So so that was Moses and eventually the high priest who would go in and meet with God there. Look at Exodus 25 and verse 22. God says, there I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So where is God talking about that he's gonna meet with the people? He's saying, I'm gonna meet with you right in here. When you come into the Holy of Holies, this is where I will meet with you. Now, one interesting thing that the Ark of the Covenant held the tablets of the 10 commandments. Eventually, the rod of Aaron is gonna go in there and some manna from the wilderness will go in there. But initially, all God had them put in this Ark of the Covenant was the 10 commandments. And so what's fascinating about this is that these angels were actually looking down on the 10 commandments, understanding that we 
couldn't fulfill those so that we were guilty before God as they were looking down at the mercy seat through the mercy seat and seeing the 10 commandments. They knew that we were guilty before God. And so when the high priest or Moses would go in there, guess where they would sprinkle the blood at? They would sprinkle the blood right there between the angels and on top of the mercy seat so that when the angels were looking down, they didn't see that they, we weren't fulfilling the commandments. They saw the blood of the sacrifice. And this was pointing us to someone greater who would come and spill their blood and sprinkle it there so that when they looked down at us, they don't see our sin. They see the blood of another. This is the Ark of the Covenant. The second thing that, they, uh, that God gives instructions to build is the table of bread. This table was made of wood. It was covered in gold like the Ark, but it was in the holy place. So it wasn't in the holy of holies. It was in the holy place. The most important I can't say that word either. The most important part was not the table, but it was these 12 pieces of bread or these 12 loaves of bread that were on the top of it. You see, the purpose was that each one of those loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So each tribe had a place at the table. This is what God was saying to the people, that each tribe had a place at the table, as they would come to this table every week, they would put new bread out as a symbol that, that everyone was welcome at the table, uh, that this was God providing their daily bread for each one of the tribes of Israel. Then you had the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand was positioned in the holy place right across from this table of bread now, this is not a lampstand in, in the sense of what you see at weddings or things like this. This It was a 75-pound lampstand, right? This was the real deal. And this, these uh, uh, lamps were to be burning all the time. So they were to light up that area to represent God's presence, and they were to burn all the time. So part of the priestly duties was to go in there and to put oil in them to keep them burning so that it represented the presence of God. Then you come to chapter 26. And in chapter 26, all of it is the structure of the tabernacle. God describes how to build the curtains and the structure for the tabernacle. So this is a picture of the tabernacle, obviously, from the top. You can see, here's the Ark of the Covenant. This curtain would come across here, and this area was known as the Holy of Holies. Then you had the holy place. And here you can see the golden lampstand, and you can see the table of bread in the holy place here. So this Chapter 26, and again, it gets into really fine details of how this is to be built. Built. You can see that there's four layers over. This is skin and cloth that they would lay over the ark or that they would lay over the, the wood that was uh, the structure of the tabernacle. So this is constructed not to keep people out of the presence of God, but to protect people from the presence of God, right? So, so this is God's grace. 
that he knew just to have the Ark of the Covenant where his presence would be at out in the open, people would die because they couldn't be in the presence of God because of their sin. So he creates this structure as a means to protect his people from the presence of God because he knew they couldn't be there without being killed. It it takes us back to remember with Moses and going up the mountain. Remember how there was this fence they built around the mountain so that the people wouldn't cross it? This is the same idea that you can't get too close to the presence of God and live. And so the temple structure was a means to, to keep the people, to protect them from being killed from being in the presence of God in an unworthy manner. Then you come to chapter 27, and in chapter 27, you find the bronze altar. This bronze altar was in the outer court, and it was 7.5 feet, or seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and four and a half feet high. This altar was placed right at the entrance of the temple area. And it was there for a reason. And the reason was that when people would come into this tabernacle area, the first thing that they would encounter is the altar to sacrifice. It was a reminder that you couldn't enter the presence of God without a sacrifice. So that's why when they would come through, and we'll show it here to you in just a minute, when they would come through the curtain to go into this tabernacle area, the first, this huge thing that they would see in front of them is this altar. And it was just a visual reminder to them that you don't come into the presence of God without a sacrifice. Then you come to the court of the tabernacle in chapter 27, verses 9 through 19. These are the walls and curtains that would go around the tabernacle. So look with that, look with it, with it, with me. This is the tabernacle, all right? So we saw the breakdown of it. You have the Holy of Holies, all right? Then you have the holy place. Then this is the courtyard of the tabernacle. Right here is the altar. But what's interesting about the God's building of this and telling them how to build it is this. There was only one entrance into the tabernacle area. So you didn't have like a back door to the tabernacle, right, area. There was only one entrance, God said, and you can see it here. It's sort of dotted in the screen. That, that was the one way that you could come into the tabernacle area. That was the one way you could Come in. You you couldn't come in from the side or from the back. You had to come in through the way. Just a fun note. God said, when you set this up, I always want the gate or I always want the way to point towards the east. Hmm. Why would God always want that to point towards the east? Well, you remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them out of the garden. What did God set up and where did he set it up for them to not come back into the garden? He set it up on the east of the garden of Eden. So by putting the gate or putting the way to God in the east, he was saying, this is a way to get back to what I designed you to be and who I designed you to be with. That was free. There you go. That's pretty cool. Then the last thing is the oil 
from the lamp in the last two verses of Exodus chapter 27. People were to give the oil for them to use and then God, and then the purpose was it that God's light would burn day and night signifying the presence of God was with them. So those lights on those, the, the, the lampstands would never go out because God's presence was always with them. So why does God go to all this detail for his people to be able to be in his presence? Like, why does he devote chapter 25 through chapter 27 and chapter 35 through chapter 40 or chapter, yeah, 35 through 40? Why does he give all of this space in the Bible to this tabernacle? Like, don't you think there would have been better things for God to spend his time on and instructing us in than seven chapters from the book of Exodus? The Bible, they tell us, researchers tell us that there's 50 chapters dedicated to this tabernacle area. So why would God spend so much time talking about the tabernacle and the court and all of that? It's because of this, you and I were made for God and we were made to live in the presence of God. We were made to be with God. Remember what Exodus 25, eight said, that the purpose of the building of the tabernacle was that God could dwell amongst his people? Why? Because that's what they were made for. They were made for the presence of God. So let's, let's go all the way back to creation. Genesis chapter three and verse eight, Adam and Eve have sinned and they realize they sinned. But I want you to see this just sentence that Moses makes that, that we can run by, but it shows us the presence of God. In Exodus chapter three and verse eight, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. What was he doing? Walking in the garden. So in the Garden of Eden, when everything was perfect, there's no sin, the presence of God was throughout that. And the Bible says that God would come and he would walk around with Adam and Eve. Like we see that in just passing, but think about how incredible that is. That there was just this sense of community with God. There was sense of peace with God. There was this sense of comfort, right? There's like his presence was there and we, he would come and walk and we'd go on a stroll through the garden together, right? And talk about life. This is, this is what God had made Adam and Eve for. He'd made them for himself and so that he could have a relationship with them and so that they could walk together in the garden and enjoy his creation together. So we see this all the way back, but we know what happened, right? That man and, and Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because they had sinned against God. And at this moment, were separated from the presence of God. But yet God had made us to be in his presence. God had made us to be with him. And so you begin to see the pages of scripture unfold and you see what happens in Exodus chapter 25 and verse eight, where God says, I'm no longer gonna be this distant deity. I'm gonna come down and I'm gonna dwell in your midst through this tabernacle structure. I'm gonna be amongst you because you were made 
to be with me and I was made, I was, God wasn't made, that was a bad statement. Strike that from the online thing, I, that was wrong. God wasn't made. I made you to be with me, to be in my presence. And so we see that through this and then eventually we'll see it in the temple area that God's presence was there. But then you fast forward thousands of years and you come to the New Testament and John begins to talk about a man by the name of Jesus. And John says this in John chapter one and verse 14, and the word that Jesus became flesh and what your word does John use? Dwelt among us. I wonder what John's thinking. Well, if you understand the word dwelt, you could translate it tabernacled among us. So what John is saying is that we've seen the presence of God in the tabernacle, but now the presence of God is not in the tabernacle anymore. Now the presence of God is in Jesus because he's coming to tabernacle among us. He's coming to be in our midst. And so when you understand that Jesus is the tabernacle of God, he is the presence of God, the words of Jesus begin to jump off the stage, off, off the pages of scripture in the gospel. It, it makes sense why they would call him Emmanuel, God with us. It makes sense why John the Baptist would look at Jesus and say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why? Because they knew that when they would go into the temple area, the first thing that they would see is, a, is an altar that needed a sacrifice. And this is the lamb who was the sacrifice. This is the one who would shed his blood, who would be the ultimate sacrifice. It's why Jesus would make statements like, I am the light of the world. See, his, his presence didn't dwell in, in a tabernacle anymore made of hands. He, he was God and now he was the light of the world. He was the one whose light would shine day and night to the ends of the earth. It makes sense why Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. And whoever eats of me will never be hungry again. Their mind would have raced to the tabernacle and that area where you had the lamp and you had the bread. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the better bread. Every week you got to replace that bread, but I am the bread that will completely satisfy and provide for you forever. It's why in John chapter 2, in verse 18, when Jesus walks into the temple area and he starts cleaning house and the Pharisees are getting ticked at him because he's cleaning house. Jesus says to them in verse 19 of John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise up. Then the Jews says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? What did they miss? They missed that the presence of God wasn't in the temple anymore. The presence of God was in the person of Jesus Christ. So when he says you're going to destroy this temple, he's talking about his death and his burial and three days is going to be rebuilt. He's talking about his resurrection. Jesus would make this statement as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many ways was there in to the presence of God? One way. Why would Jesus say, I am the way, 
because he is the only way to the presence of God. When Jesus dies on the cross and it's recorded for us in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51, it says that this curtain that we saw in the Holy of Holies is ripped from top to bottom. Why was it ripped from top to bottom? Because Jesus had finished. He had sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat, right? Now they were covered and now we can be in the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't need that anymore because the presence of God dwells in Jesus Christ. So then it's like, all right, I understand that. I see that connection, but Jesus doesn't live among us anymore. We know from Acts that Jesus ascends into heaven. And so where is the presence of God now? Where does God dwell now? Well, if you look at John chapter 16 and verse 7, Jesus lets us know that. When he says to his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. But you're the presence of God, Jesus. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he says to us, the presence of God now is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And so as Paul was thinking through the implications of this, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. He says, so then, because you're a follower of Jesus, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him... That's in Jesus. You also are being built together into a dwelling place of for God by the Spirit. So where does God dwell today? Where does his presence dwell? In us, the church. Isn't that incredible? That we are the tabernacle of God. We are the place where God's presence dwells. He dwells amongst us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 19 and 20, Paul puts it this way. Do you not know that your body is the temple or the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. When I understand that I was made for God and for his presence, it makes my life a lot more purposeful. You and I are not a bunch of random elements that came together randomly throughout the history. No, we have a purpose and our purpose is the God and his glory and his presence. And if we understand this, if we understand that the presence of God now lives in us through the person of the Holy Spirit, it matters how we live our lives. Why? because you represent God to the world. Because him living in you, you are the presence of God to those around you. You see, when people walked by the temple area and the tabernacle area, they weren't like, you know what? I'm not real sure what that's for. 
They knew exactly what it was for. It was for the presence of God. When people walk by our lives as followers of Jesus, they ought to know that the presence of God is with us. This is why Paul would talk about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. Why? Because the presence of God dwells in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. So people should see our lives and think about the presence of God, should think about Jesus. Does your life reflect the presence of God? Is there love and joy and peace and patience Goodness, kindness, self-control. Are those evidences of, of the presence of Jesus being inside of you coming out through you? Because Paul tells us this is where he dwells. He dwells with us, the church. When people drive by Antioch, they should know what we're all about. They shouldn't have to wonder. It is a good thing when people say of our church, I just feel like the presence of God is there. It is because he lives inside of us and we are his dwelling place. And that should be evidence to the world around us. But it gets even better because when you come to the end of the Bible, you come to the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is about things that are to come. And you come to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. And here's what John says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with, his, with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Here's what he's doing. He's taking us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he's saying, just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve and I walked around and we were together and I was in their midst and now we've seen it through the tabernacle. Now we've seen it through Jesus and now we're seeing it through the church. One day it's coming where he's gonna dwell among us again just like he did in the garden of Eden. And I love verse four because it says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The garden of Eden is coming again and God will dwell among us again. But until that time, it matters how we live our lives. Until that time, it matters because God dwells in us and people are seeing the presence of God through our lives. I would encourage you to live in light of the day that is to come. So I began by asking you the question, what were you made for? I would say that you were made to be in the presence of God. And some of you today live in a state of unrest because you've never entered the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We, we call this salvation. And I would encourage you today to consider your heart. Do you live in a constant state of unrest? Augustine of Hippo said that 
our heart is, un, is, is, is living in a state of unrest until we find our rest in God. And some of you are living in a state of unrest because you're trying to find something to satisfy you, to be in the presence of someone who will satisfy you, and it's never enough. Why? Because you were meant to be in the presence of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And so you're just in this constant state of unrest. This week, I traveled to Colorado with my son, my oldest son, Carson, to check out a college. And, you know, the first night when you get in a hotel, it's always horrible for us anyways, because it's all new sounds. And so that whole first night, it was, nobody got any sleep. It's like, why even, you know, like, let's just travel overnight because nobody sleeps anyway. Every time Carson would move, it would wake me up. And every time I would move, Carson would wake up, right? It was just this, like, he would make a noise and it's like, what are you doing? And then he's yelling at me and we're yelling at, you know, that kind of thing. Because it's just, we're irritated and we want to go to sleep, but you can't go to sleep and you're higher altitude, so you can't breathe. And it was just, there was a state of unrest all night. But the sad reality is many of you in this room, not many, some of you in this room live in a constant state of that. And you don't have to. You don't have to toss and turn. You can be at rest. Why? Because of Jesus. He's made a way for you to know God. And if you know God, you're at peace. Peace is to be complete, to be whole. You're not looking for anything else. You're not trying to find rest in anybody but the person of Jesus Christ. I would invite you today to find your rest in God, to come to the presence of God. That's what you were made for. You were made to be in the presence of God. And then for us, the church, I would say this section of scripture is a good reminder that we represent the presence of God to the world around us. We are the temple of God. We are the tabernacle of God through the Holy Spirit. And when people walk by our lives, when people come by our church, do they know what we are all about? Would they say that the presence of God is with us? Would they say that the presence of God is with you at your work? Would they say that the presence of God is with you at your college? Would they say that the presence of God is with you in your home? If not, then I think we need to examine our hearts, right? Maybe we need to confess some sin. Maybe we need to make things right with the Lord. But just remember, we represent God to the world around us and his presence through us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word and uh, for all the details of the tabernacle. I know it can be just tedious uh, sections of scripture to work through where it's like, why in the world do I got to read Cubit another time and all those kinds of things? But you were showing us how much you loved us and how you knew that we were created to be with you. We were created for you. And so I thank you, Lord, that the tabernacle reminds us of that. And it reminds us of the importance of Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no way that we could have been in your presence. So thank you, Jesus, for giving your life, for shedding your blood so that we could know God, so that we could be in the presence of God. And I pray, Lord, that we as your church would represent you well, that as you've said in Ephesians 2, that you dwell among us. I pray that we would represent you well to the world 
around us, that they would see you. May they not see our good works. May they not see our nice buildings, but may all of this just point them to you who are greater than all those things. So draw our hearts to you. If there's a person in the room today, Lord, who finds their heart to be at unrest with you, may they come the one way that you've made through Jesus and find rest for their souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.